Well, if you have a Bible, uh, go ahead and open it up to Exodus 32. It would be really good, especially today, if uh, you had a Bible or even a device that you had the text on. If you need a Bible, there is uh, Bibles in the back there. But we have been journeying through the book of Exodus as a church family. We find ourselves in Exodus 32 and uh, a really famous passage um, some of you might know of. But we've said through Exodus uh, these two points that we know are true, that God is working a good plan built on his promises. That's what he gave to the children of Israel and, and told them that he would deliver them. But like his plans are often in our life, it rarely plays out like we think it's going to. And so even in this turn in the account, the narrative of Exodus, we see it's playing out a little different than we thought. So I'm going to read from Exodus 32, and this is what I would say. It's a really long passage, but it's a narrative. It's an account you're going to see. And I want you to, like, if you have a Bible, I want you to follow along. But if you don't, it'll be on the screens. I want you to listen to the story. I don't want you to read the words. I want you to listen to what is happening in the nation of Israel at this point. They've received the law. They, they have, have appointed Moses as their leader, and Moses has gone up to meet with God to get the Ten Commandments. The tablets were a real thing, and to bring them back. And this is what they're doing while he's meeting with God. This is what God's Word says. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off your rings of gold and are, that are in your ears of your wives and your sons and your daughters and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are our, our, your gods, O Israel. You've brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf as an idol and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, in order that I may make a great nation of you. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on this people. Then Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, tablets that were written on both sides, on the front and on the back they were written. The tablets were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. When Joshua heard the noise of the people as he shouted, he said to Moses, there is a noise of war in the camp, but he said it is not the sound of shouting for victory. 
or the sound of the cry of defeat, but the sound of singing I hear. And as soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot. And he threw the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf that they had made and burned it with fire and ground it to powder and scattered it on water and made the people of Israel drink it. And Moses said to Aaron, what did this people do you do to you that you have brought such a great sin upon them? And Aaron said, let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people, but they are set on evil. For they said to me, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us out up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So I said to them, let any, of, let any who have gold take it off. So they gave it to me and threw it in the fire and out came this calf. Crazy, I know. And when Moses saw that the people had broken loose, for Aaron had let them break loose to the derision of their enemies, then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered around him, and he said to him, them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Put your sword on your side, each of you, and go to and fro from gate to gate throughout the camp, and each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses. And that day, about 3,000 men of the people fell. And Moses said, Today to the Levites here, you have been ordained for the service of the Lord, each one at the cost of his son and of his brother, so that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. The next day, Moses said to the people, You have sinned a great sin. And now I will go up to the Lord, perhaps, I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. But the Lord said to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. But now go lead the people to the place where, about which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. Then the Lord sent a plague to the on the people because they had made the calf, the one that Aaron had made. Friends, that is a mouthful. It is an event at which they, the children of Israel should not be proud, and nor we, even as we look at this, the sin in our hearts. So I would ask you to pray. And I would ask you to pray for something specific, that God would give you a soft heart towards him in this moment, that you would turn to him now, and that we'll continue to... Uh, use us here together in ministry, but I'm going to ask us to pray, and then we're going to see what this all means for us. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word, even the reading of it. Sometimes as a preacher, I want to say so much. But Father, even as we have read this, I pray that we are turned in attention towards you now, recognizing the great sin that fell upon Israel that day that they committed out of their own evil in their own hearts. And Father, I pray that you would challenge us now as a people that are inclined towards evil in our hearts often, that you would soften them and that we would turn back towards you with repentant and soft hearts and that we would see the glory and beauty of Jesus. And we pray these things in his name and all God's people said. What is captivating your heart right now? I want you to think about that. Seriously think about that. What is captivating your heart right now? In other words, what I mean by that is what has your heart's attention right now? You know, if you believe in what Jesus said, it's where your treasure is, right? If you go find what your treasure, Jesus said in the Gospels, there you're going to find your heart. 
What is your heart affectionate towards right now? What is it consumed with? That can be a variety of things. Maybe for you, it's set on something material right now. You're thinking of that next thing you want to purchase. Maybe it's set on a relationship in some way. Maybe it's set on some career move. Maybe it's set on something money-related. Maybe it's set on some pleasure where you know right now, as you walked into this building this morning, you know that your heart is set on something, and it might not be God. What is your heart captivated by? What is your heart being drawn towards other than God this morning? Take a moment to really think about this. We have a friend that we know in our family who had an injured neck and, and often is the case with injured vertebrae and, inter, and injured necks. Um, sometimes that requires neck fusion. And this particular friend of ours has had neck fusion. And when neck fusion happens, your, your ability to rotate your neck becomes a little less easy. And so often this person that we know, this friend of ours, she will have to turn really slowly to turn and to look at something around her. She can't whip her head and turn it around. Even our kids asked recently, how does she drive like carefully? She has to do it very carefully because her neck is all bound together by fusion. Friends, when we look at Exodus 32, we learn really quick that these people, these stiff-necked people, had neck fusion, if you will, and it wasn't because of a physical thing. It was in their hearts. We have the capacity when our hearts are set on something other than God to create this neck fusion, if you will, in our hearts where our hearts are slow. They become slower to turn back to God if we keep our eyes fixed on the things of the world. That can happen in our hearts by choice when we fail to turn them towards God which is called repentance, which is a word we're going to focus on as we transition to the Lord's Supper today. You see, when we come to Exodus 32, you see that God refers to these people as stiff-necked people, and that is not a compliment. Here are some synonyms of sin, sin, I love synonyms, synonyms, obstinate, stubborn, willful, rebellious, wayward, defiant, unruly, ornery, pig-headed. When Stephen preached in Acts 8, in the New Testament, he called the Jewish leaders stiff-necked, uncircumcised of hearts and ears, always resisting the Holy Spirit. You find that verse in 50, chapter uh, 7 and verse 51. Again, not a compliment. When the Lord promised judgment on Jerusalem, he said it was coming because they were, Israel, a stiff-necked people and would not listen to my words. They just wouldn't obey. The word used here for the first time, this stiff-necked, would be referred to Israel over and over, alludes to their natural propensity, listen to this, their natural propensity to disobey God and his explicit commands with no desire to humbly repent and seek forgiveness. Now, most of us right now are checking out and saying, well, like, I don't do that. Keep listening. You see, they have an attitude problem. And it's pride that keeps us from hearing what God is saying. It's pride that keeps us from wanting to go towards what God is saying. It's pride that makes our necks stiff and pride that keeps our eyes off of God and our hearts from obedience. Stubborn, unwilling to turn, proud people we are. And specifically, this is the great sin of putting something before God, which we know pride leads to idolatry. And we all have hearts that are little idol factories that are just creating new ones all the time. And if when we put something in front of that, we resist the power of the Spirit in our lives. And as we continue in it, locked onto it, whatever that is in a multitude of things, it captivates our heart 
and something other than God, we develop almost a neck fusion, unable to turn as easily as we used to. If that's the pattern you set before us. And again, I said, if you wonder about now, which you all should be wondering, what the warning signs for someone who is stiff-necked like that, here's the list. In case you were saying, that's not me, you already broke the first one on the list. There's eight that'll be up here. Here's how you can know, hey, I might be developing a stiff-necked personality or attitude in my heart towards God. Certainty that you are right. Refusal to listen to anyone else. Defensive when criticized. Making excuses for your shortcomings. Well, everybody sins and we're all failures. Lashing out at others. No desire to examine your own life. No desire to look inward. And repeated pattern of misbehaviors. So you keep disobeying God. You keep up in sin. And this last one, hugely important. Prayer without repentance. And believe it or not, Christians, we are really good at that one. Just motion prayer, but it has no turning towards God. And this can happen to any of us when we become so hardened in our ways and so certain of ourselves that no one can reach us. We don't realize what has happened until judgment comes. So I want to take a look here in the text briefly, and I really don't have a lot of time to unpack it. But the easiest way that I can summarize what is happening here is by looking at verse 8 and then 30. And I'll recite those. Here's the problem. In verse 8, they have turned aside quickly out of the way I have commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed it to it and said, these are your gods, O Israel. So Moses was, God said, look at these people. They've turned away from what I've said. They've made themselves an idol, a false god. And then Later, Moses says this in verse 30 to the people about this. He says, you have sinned a great sin. Now I will go up and see, because he wanted to, if I can make atonement for that sin. So they create the idol. These people don't know when Moses is coming back. He acknowledges that this is the great sin, and I'll go see if I can convince God not to wipe you from the face of the earth. I wish I had time to just summarize all the details, but I just simply don't have the time, but I'll break it up into eight sections for you of keeping flow through understanding the narrative. The first one being this, the sin committed in verses one through six. I'm not going to read it all again, but they broke, listen to this, they broke the first three commandments right away. God had just given it to them and they break the first three commandments. If you flip back a couple chapters, you can go to Exodus 20. I'm just going to read those. God spoke these words, Here's the Ten Commandments, the first three of you know them. I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. One, you shall have no other gods before me. They broke it. They created a new one. Two, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or what is in earth beneath or that is in water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I am the Lord your God as a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children of the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to the thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. They broke that one. They created a false God in the image of a golden calf. And three, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. You might be wondering about that. They credited to the golden calf what belonged only to God. They said that these are our gods who brought you. They looked at the golden calf which they had made before, again, and I really want your hearts to be in here before you think, like, I would never do that. They credited God, this God, little g, this golden calf was something that God, big G, had done for them. They took his name in vain. They credited something else. Maybe you do this. Your wealth, your 
whatever you have and you credit yourself for something that God allowed you to have and gave you. And what's crazy about this is they used the very gold that God had given them when they left Egypt. You know when you go on a vacation, what do you usually get as a memory? You get a souvenir, right? It's as if they took the very gold, the souvenir from God redeeming them and delivering them out of Egypt. The thing that said, this is the plunder of Egypt that I'm going to give you as a reminder. And you're going to go build the tabernacle. And they took it and they made a false idol with it. Worse than that, it's supposed to be used for the tabernacle, right? To be in the presence of God. And that's what they squandered with, which God had given them. Makes you think about how much you and I waste and worship that with that which God gives, a, gives us for an entirely different purpose. His purpose and work. How soon we forget where it all comes from. The second section, you see God now sees the sin and warns of the punishment. He says in verses 7 through 10, there, God's anger comes out there and their wickedness and failure to obey him alone right. And he calls them out for giving credit to another God, ignoring his provision. And God at this point wants to destroy them. And it's this third section, Moses comes along in verses 11 through 14, and he asks God, don't do that. He asks him to relent. He says, you've delivered these people for a purpose, and why would you give the Egyptians a reason to wonder why you did that? He kind of calls them and reminds him of the covenant promise of Abraham. And everyone, and I would say this, and this is all I'm going to say about this right now. Anyway, you can ask me more questions later. In verse 14, when God changes his mind, everybody always challenges that. and Like, did God not know? John 6, 6 can give us a greater perspective. Jesus did the same thing. When he was feeding the 5,000, he asked the disciples, where are we going to buy bread? And then he said this. He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. This in no way questions God's sovereignty or his perfect will. It is a description of God's attitude as seen from a human angle. Jesus gives us clarity in that. God knew their hearts. He knew Moses, and Moses convinces him. God does not change his mind. He already knew what he was going to do. But Moses is hot then in this fourth section. And he goes down and he just says, you know what? I might have just asked God not to punish them, but I'm going to punish them myself. Moses is furious. And you could say that he was a little angry. He crushes the tablets on the way down the mountain, signifying that the covenant between them and God had been broken. He comes down and he finds them dancing and singing. Remember, they rose up to play because they thought they were worshiping. They had a new God now. Think about this, Christians. Like, like you think you're doing so well in life sometimes, and God, almost this conviction comes at you, and Moses comes down in this way, and they're just living life, like American culture life. And he comes down and is like, what in the world are you doing? He crushes the idol in their life, the golden calf. It says he ground it up, and then he makes them drink it. This is when you and I write about now, because this is to me too, ought to be like shrinking back a little in our chair. But this is how seriously God takes sin. Moses then goes to Aaron in the sixth section or fifth section and he confronts Aaron. Why? Why is godly leadership so important? He goes to Aaron and you all chuckled right when I read it, right? I put in all the gold and out came the calf. The oldest sin in the book, he passes the blame. I, I didn't know. You and I do this with our sin all the time. I didn't know that that had my heart, that that wasn't good for me. Like, they just like, Moses then, as a leader he was, and this is a strange section I know, he wants to remove the sin, and he asks the Levites to gather, and he asks this important question, who is on the Lord's side? 
and he gathers the Levites, and they go through the camp surgically that day to remove the sin, those who had no repentance in their hearts. 3,000 men fall that day. And after that, Moses then in verses 30 through 34 tries to atone for the sin. He knows it has to be paid for. Friends, that's the thing. Sin always needs to be atoned for. There always needs to be a payment before God, a holy God. And Moses wants to make it so much so, if you see this in the text, he says if he can't and if God won't forgive them, then he's asking just to remove from the book of life. Moses cared so much about the people of God that he said, I want you to remove this sin. And if you can't do that, if you can't forgive them, then just blot my name out of the book. And you see in this, this attitude of Moses, this is important to note, a foreshadowing of Christ as a mediator who goes before. But you see, Moses isn't a perfect mediator, as we know in the text. He can't do what Jesus would come to do. And God tells him, you can't do this. And he sends him on his way. And in verse 35, the text wraps where the Lord disciplines every sin. Friends, every sin has a consequence. And that punishment was given by way of plague. And I say that for emphasis because you and I, people of grace, the gospel of grace, sometimes in our lives we're like, man, Jesus paid for it all. We're sometimes really foolish. Every sin committed has a consequence. That doesn't mean that you don't have the gospel. That doesn't mean that you lose your salvation. All the, that doesn't mean that you're out of grace. It just means that we're foolish sometimes because we celebrate grace, grace, grace so much we continue in sin because grace, 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 that's not what the Bible says. It says no more. You've got to understand what Jesus has done, and that ought to change your attitude back towards God. And know that every sin committed has a consequence. Tons of questions you ask in this text, but what you must understand is this question in this text for me to kind of like summarize it. What made the people, it's the one question I have when I read this again, what made the people make this idol? These were God's people. They, he drew them out of Egypt. He gave them everything. He drew them to himself. He formed them as a nation. What made them do that? It was essentially the question Moses asked of Aaron. What did the people do to you that you have brought such a great sin upon them. Why'd you do that? And his response, you know the people. Their hearts, they're set on evil. They said to me, make God. So I said, give me your gold. And out came this calf. That's what they did. Again, you read that and you say, man, they were really bad. How could they do that? How dumb do you have to be? God draws them into salvation. How dumb do you have to be to go and make a golden calf? How dumb do you have to be to give your heart to another idol when God has redeemed your life? How dumb do you have to be to do that? When they had made this idol, they break the first three commandments God's given them. Moses is on his way down the mountain within hand in writing the covenant again, right? The agreement of God with his people. And how soon does it take him to break it? He doesn't even have the signed copy delivered. And their hearts are already away from him. And you sit here like I sit here, and I read it this week, and I was in it, and I said, man, I would never do that. I would never do that the way they did that. And therein lies our problem. We fool ourselves at times. And over time can become stiff-necked, if not careful, when the heart is left unchecked. Pride and idolatry is a terrible thing. Paul warns of it in 1 Corinthians 10, which Fiona read. He uses a similar example in Galatians 1, 6 in the New Testament. Paul is astonished, it says there, how quickly they have deserted the Christ 
who had given them grace. My paraphrase. I'm astonished how quickly you've deserted Christ and the gospel of grace for another gospel. Why on earth would you do that? What could be of greater value than Jesus Christ? You see, friends, we have a huge problem in our hearts. And if I could summarize, this is this 32, Exodus 32 exposes the huge problem of pride and idolatry in our own hearts. But as we turn towards the Lord's Supper this morning, you have an opportunity to thank God for the solution to that problem. You see, when we come to Exodus 32, Moses foreshadows Christ as a mediator, but not a perfect one, like I said. Jesus will later come and live a perfect life and die on a cross, be buried and rise victoriously over sin, coming for us to perfectly atone for that sin that Moses could not atone for. To mediate and to intercede against God's wrath. And if you read Exodus 32 and you don't see God's wrath, you're missing it. And he says that's his wrath against sin. Jesus comes and he takes all that on himself. And he takes it for us. And because of that, our sin, when you place faith in Jesus, our sin isn't held against us anymore. That's remarkable, friends. The wrath that you see God executing in judgment in Exodus 32, Jesus Christ comes to earth and he takes all of that on himself to pronounce you and I who place our faith in him guiltless. And it's not to say that sin doesn't have consequence anymore. It's just that that's our eternal status status before God, justified and acquitted of the punishment due to us. It's why I believe the marker, the true marker of someone who has truly understood that and responded to it by faith in Jesus Christ, understands the grace of God, and someone who is saved and redeemed in that way practices constant, true, and genuine repentance. So here's where I want to land this morning. I have not handled this text all the ways I wanted to, but here's where I want to land as we focus in on the Lord's Supper. I want to focus on one word. The, the thing that I believe as we just set our attitude and hearts toward it, the thing that I believe is the reason some died and some lived that day. I think this summary statement is what you can learn from Exodus 32 to an American Christian church culture. Listen to this. Religious activity without true repentance from sin and the pursuit of holiness, obedience, or rather joyful obedience and the awestruck worship of the Almighty God won't gain you anything. Religious Activity without true repentance from sin and the pursuit of holiness, joyful obedience, and the awestruck worship of the Almighty God won't gain you anything. You see, Israel thought they were doing worship. Some people come to church and think they do their duty of worship. Israel was interesting because they gave the right sacrifices, the festival, the peace offerings. They gave the, all the peace offerings that they would have to God Almighty. They gave them to the golden calf instead. They were rising up and playing and dancing, and they thought they were being joyful and worship. And God says, no, 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 you're just doing religious activity. Your hearts are set to an idol, not to the one true God, which makes his anger burn hot. And I wonder how often we come in together with that same attitude in our hearts. Becky, can you put that back up there? You see, this is that religious activity without true... This is what keeps us from neck fusion. When you say, I want true repentance from sin. I want to pursue holiness. I want to be joyfully, not obligatory, not church rules, not like, oh, I have to do this because I'm... 
joyful obedience. I actually want to serve. I actually want to give. I actually want to grow. I actually want to tell the world about Jesus. And the awestruck worship of the God who gives us everything. Like, I want to give my life to God because I don't have anything that God didn't give me. I'm not breathing unless God gives me breath in my lungs. I might have health issues and all this stuff, but God's given me life, and I want to just be in awe of him. And if you don't have that, you don't have anything. That's what keeps us from next fusion, a heart unchecked where it says, I don't, I'm, I just, I'm always right, I'm defensive. And friends, as we transition now to the Lord's Supper, I want us to use this time to confess and repent to God again. Russell read it earlier in Mark 1, 14 and 15. When Jesus came, he said, the kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe. And here's what I would say about it. The Lord's Supper, Supper is a meal for believers only, for people that have understood and repented of their own sinfulness, trusted Christ, placed their faith in him, have been born anew, and want to follow him. And then there's another category of people that, that are saved and redeemed in that way, but when you come to the Lord's Supper, you might have sin in your hearts that you're just saying, God, I'm not changing. Paul says you should let this meal pass. You shouldn't take this meal because you're not acknowledging the grace of God, the grace of Jesus in your life. And then there's a third category of people when we come to this meal. Maybe you've never placed your faith in Jesus Christ. You just listen to all of this and the gospel is heard and you say, I don't know if I've ever truly turned my wicked heart towards God and said, Father, forgive me. And this meal is for people that have repented once coming to saving faith and for people who continue to repent and turn back towards God in order that we do not gain a stiff neck and a hard heart. And so what I want to do is I want to pray for us. The elders can come forward. I know the music team is going to come up. A couple of folks from the music team. And I pray that you would use this time to know and remember what Christ has done and desire nothing more than him alone. He is ha all we have and all we need. We don't need anything else to fill our emptiness. We ought not worship anyone else or anything else. And so I pray that that is your heart's true cry as you come to this table this morning. If you've trusted Christ by faith, you are welcome to this table. If you're living in sin and saying in this moment, you know, Pastor Craig, I hear what you're saying, but I don't really, really want to change my heart. Let these elements pass. If you have sin against a brother, it says, or sin in your heart, or maybe you're wandering, it's an okay thing to do. And maybe you've never accepted the gift of grace. Maybe this would be your opportunity as these elements are passed to cry out to God and ask for his forgiveness and say, I want to follow this Jesus. I want to worship this Jesus. May we be in awe. Let's use this time to focus on Jesus alone. Let me pray. Father in heaven, we come before you, sinful people. And Father, we come to church worship Sundays with many different attitudes. Sometimes we come in here joyful, and sometimes we come in here sorrowful, and sometimes, even today, the heaviness of our sin is present before us. And that's, that's an okay thing to feel the heaviness of that right now. And so, Father, I pray that you would turn all of our hearts towards you in this moment. Maybe some will sit and have to just weep over their sin. Maybe some will sit and just reflect on how their heart hasn't been with you. Maybe some will, will take and be overwhelmed by your grace and goodness. Maybe some are crying out to you this very moment, responding to the good news of the gospel and saying, God, I want you to forgive me for my sins. I want to follow this Jesus and be saved from your wrath. 
Whatever that is, I pray that we would spend this time focusing on Jesus alone. It is in his name that we pray. Amen.